Thank you for listening to Understanding Christianity. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Cole. I am the lead pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. Thank you for listening to the podcast today. I'm so thankful for my listeners. You could do us a great favor by going to Apple Podcast or wherever you listen to this or download this and give us a positive review and rating. You can also share Understanding Christianity on your social media platforms Twitter, Facebook, Parlor now, which seems where a lot of people are going. Um, Instagram, we'd love to have you share this podcast with those that you think it would be helpful. As a Reformed Baptist, I hold to the 1689 Second London Baptist Confession. It's very similar to the Westminster Confession of Faith. Um, in addition, I find the Westminster Shorter Catechism very helpful, along with the Keech's Baptist Catechism. Uh, which also derives from the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And maybe you're not familiar with Keech's Baptist Catechism. It's basically a catechism for children based upon the 1689. Uh, In 1693, the General Assembly of Particular Baptists in England and Wales voted to create a catechism to instruct children on the key doctrines of the faith. And so they assigned this to a man named Pastor William Collins, and he completed it in 1695. Now you wonder why it's not called the Collins Catechism. Why is it called the Keech's Catechism, named after Benjamin Keech? There's some historical issues here that we're not quite sure about, but most scholars believe that Benjamin Keech played a part in doing some minor revisions on the Catechism, and really he was the one that popularized the Baptist Catechism in England and Wales, and also was used in America with Reformed Baptists. And so what I want to do is I want to interact with this catechism. Now remember, this is a catechism used to teach children the truths of the faith. And some of these doctrines, adults don't even want to touch with the 10-foot pole. And so I would really want to interact with three of the questions. Remember, a catechism is where you ask a question, and then you give an answer, and then there's scriptural support. Um, Questions 10, 11, and 14... They all deal with God's decree and God's providence. And again, if you're Presbyterian and listening to this, this is very similar to the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Since I am a Reformed Baptist, I go with the Baptist Catechisms, but they're very, very similar, almost exactly the same. So let's look at question 10, and then we're going to look at the question. And again, this is used to teach children. And by the way, I used to catechize uh, my oldest son. Um, When he was growing up, we didn't call it catechism. We called it questions. Uh, We started this when he was in kindergarten. When we were out at at the front of our house waiting at the bus stop for the bus to pick him up and go to school, we would do questions. I would ask him these catechism questions. Um, As he got older and we were driving in the car, I would also ask him these questions. And so we catechized our son pretty much all the way up through kindergarten through through high school um, using this particular Baptist catechism. So let's look at question number 10. Question number 10 says, what are the decrees of God? What are the decrees of God? Well, here's the answer. So the question, what are the decrees of God? Here's the answer. The decrees of God are his eternal purpose according to the counsel of his will, whereby for his own glory he has foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. Now this is the rub This is the theological point that many non-Reformed, non-Calvinists have a major problem with. That God ordains all things which come to pass for his own glory. 
And so one of the things that we think about in response to the decrees of God is that God has predestined all future events. He's predestined all things, past, present, and future. Not just that God merely knows in advance what will happen, that's his omniscience, but we believe the Bible takes it one step further and says God has preordained or foreordained or predestined all future events. Now, what's the scriptural support for this? So the Catechism gives Ephesians 1.11 as the primary scriptural proof for that. Ephesians 1.11, in him we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Now, obviously, this passage is talking about predestination, and it ties back up to verse 4 in Ephesians 1, where we've been predestined for adoption. But Paul here says that everything happens. God works out all things. Now, all things could contextually be, in this passage of Scripture, the spiritual blessings that we have in Christ. Or we could just say that it's all things God works out according to the purpose of Him who works out all things according to the counsel of his will. Now, I want you to notice that Paul goes to great lengths to give three Greek words to talk about this decree. Um, so let me just give you some definitions from a lexicon. Um, I like the Lunida. I think the Lunida is, is, is very accurate, very succinct. Um, it's a good Greek lexicon. So let's look at these three Greek words. Having been predestined according to the purpose, the purpose. That's the first Greek word. This word really means to plan in advance, to purpose in advance. It, it really means that in eternity past, God made a plan in advance of actually working out that plan. So it, it's to plan in advance all things according to the counsel. Okay, there's another Greek word, the counsel. This means that which has been purposed or planned. Now, it's a different Greek word, and it means God's intention, God's purpose. The other word meant God's plan that he did in advance. This just simply means God's purpose or plan. And then it's according to his will. Again, this is another Greek word, which means which God purposed or intended or willed. So, Paul could have used one Greek term to talk about God ordaining or decreeing or planning or purposing all things which come to pass, but he uses three distinct Greek words, and I believe he does this to, to show us theologically that God has a sovereign, unchangeable decree, which he planned in advance in eternity past, to work out all things, among those giving us an inheritance, predestining us, but also he's working out all things according to this advanced plan that he purposed in eternity past. Now, this is, this is where we deviate as Reformed Baptists and Reformed theologians from other Southern Baptists, other non-Calvinists, provisionists. So let's talk about the alternative view because the non-reformed view takes issue with the fact that we believe God ordains all things which come to pass. I just want to give you the Baptist Faith and Message 2000. So if you are a Southern Baptist, this is kind of a middle-of-the-road document. It's a big tent 
uh, confession of faith. It's not really a confession. It's, it's, a, it's a Baptist faith and message. Um, 2000. This is under the section on God. And I will read this to you. God is all-powerful and all-knowing, and his perfect knowledge extends to all things past, present, and future, including the future decisions of his free creatures. Now, this statement makes some theological claims. It states in the Baptist faith and message that God has perfect knowledge. So you have to really struggle with what perfect knowledge means. It doesn't say God has knowledge. It's God has perfect knowledge, and it extends to all things past, present, and future. So this is ultimately a denial of open theism, and this perfect knowledge extends to the future decisions of his free creatures. So the Baptist faith and message leaves this a little vague. You kind of have to fill in the gaps, but let's just ask a question based upon that adjective perfect put before the word knowledge, his perfect knowledge. Does God have perfect knowledge? And if you say yes, that knowledge is perfect of all things past, present, and future, including future decisions, then the question you have to ask is, can those decisions or those events be any different than what God perfectly knows? Can those free creatures do otherwise than what God already knows they will do. Now, it's one thing to claim God's omniscience. God knows in advance what people will do, the decisions they'll make. That's omniscience. It's another thing to claim that God has a sovereign decree whereby he's ordained all things that come to pass. It's not just God merely knows what's going to happen, but God ordains unchangeably what is going to happen. So the alternative view to the, the reform view is that God merely knows. He has perfect knowledge of what will happen, but that does not mean that he ordains what will happen. Uh, the, the argument from non-Calvinists is that God's foreknowledge makes future events certain, but not necessary. So let me give you a couple of quotes that may help you from non-Calvinists. Uh, William Lane Craig has argued that we do not do what God foreknows, but rather God foreknows what we will do. Okay, so that's, that's the argument, the non-Calvinistic argument. In other words, God's foreknowledge is not the cause of our actions. Our actions are the cause of God's foreknowledge. Now, let's just stop right there. Our actions are the cause of God's foreknowledge. Right there, William Lake Craig is conceding that humans, in some way, cause God to have knowledge. That God's knowledge is contingent upon what humans will do, by using the word cause there. He, he goes on to say that God's knowledge of all future contingent acts may be chronologically prior to those acts, the acts themselves are logically prior to God's knowledge. Knowledge has no causal powers. It, knowledge cannot cause anything. So therefore, God's knowledge of the future cannot be the cause of our acts. Again, this makes God contingent. This makes God's knowledge perfect in a sense that he knows what we will do. But ultimately, God's knowledge of what we will do is contingent upon what we will do. And for example, he'll say, God knows for certain 
what will happen in the future. He knows it for certain. Our free choices inform the knowledge of which he is certain. Again, our knowledges inform God. I mean, our, our, our choices inform God. I don't like the language that he uses. Our actions cause God's foreknowledge. Our choices inform God's knowledge. It makes it sound like God's passively sitting back and taking in knowledge and learning or, or somehow um, he, he's, taking, he's contingent upon what we end up doing. His foreknowledge does not determine our choices. If we would have freely, freely chosen to do X rather than Y, God would know X for certain rather than Y. But in God's foreknowledge, he knows we will freely choose Y, and thus it is certain that we will choose Y. So, so there's kind of an argument from William Lane Craig that God's foreknowledge does not necessarily mean causation or determination. Now, I think A.W. Tozer gives probably in, in his um, chapter, The Sovereignty of God, in A Treasury of Tozer, I, I found this quote, um, Leighton Flowers and others often quote this, and, and I appreciate what Tozer says here because I think he's a little bit more theologically precise in his language than William Lane Craig, and I think Tozer is trying to protect the sovereignty of God, but this is a very common view. I think this is the view of Herschel Hobbes. It's the non-reform view. A.W. Tozer says this, quote, God sovereignly decreed that man should be free to exercise moral choice. And that man from the beginning fulfilled that decree by making his choice between good and evil. The eternal decree decided not which choice that man should make, but that he should be free to make it. Man's will is free because God is sovereign. A God less sovereign could not bestow moral freedom upon his creatures. He would be afraid to do so. So basically what Tozer's saying is that God does have eternal decree. But the eternal decree is not ordaining whatsoever comes to pass, but the eternal decree is that man would be free to make those choices. He goes on to say, certain things have been decreed by the free determination of God, and one of these is the law of choice and consequence. God has decreed that all who willingly commit to themselves to the Son, Jesus Christ, in obedience of faith, shall receive eternal life and become sons of God. He's also decreed that all who love darkness and continue in rebellion against the high authority of heaven shall remain in a state of spiritual alienation and suffer eternal death at last. Our choice is our own, but the consequence of the choice have already been determined by the sovereign will of God, and from this there is no appeal. So what he's basically saying here is that God only decrees the ends, the consequences, but not the means nor the actual persons individually. Now, there's a sovereign decree of what will happen, if you use your libertarian free will, the consequence or the result of the choice is a fixed, unchangeable decree. For example, the, 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 the eternal decree is that if you believe in Jesus, you go to heaven. The eternal decree is if you, if you reject Jesus and don't believe in Jesus, you go to hell. That's the, the, the eternal decree of the, of the consequences. But the actual choices you make, you, those choices aren't determined by God. You still have the freedom to do that. So once you make the choice freely, you have to live with the uh, immutable consequences that God has set up in his decree. And I think this is admirable. It does protect God's sovereignty. It does affirm that what God ordains is unchangeable. It does say that there's fixed consequences. 
It tries to harmonize God's sovereignty without having it be meticulous sovereignty that not only brings about the ends, but also the means as well. So I don't agree with Tozer, but I think he's a little bit more precise in trying to protect uh, the unchangeable decree of God. Basically what his view is is that the unchangeable decree of God is the consequences of your free choices. In other words, the, the decree is that there's a heaven and there's a hell, and that's the ultimate decree. Now, whether you go to heaven or you go to hell, that's your choice. God decreed that you would be free to make that choice, and once you make that choice, then the decree is fulfilled in that you've made your choice, and now you have to stick with the consequences of that choice. The, that choice, once you've made it, is um, inviolable. It's, it's, it's immutable. It's a done deal. So that's kind of the differing view. Now, let's just think about the reform view about God's sovereign decree. Does God's decree extend to the actions of wicked people? Yes. And we need to be very careful because we're going to talk about this in a moment. But God does decree for wicked to happen. We see this in the death of Jesus in Acts 2.23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Now, this is Peter preaching at Pentecost. He's preaching to a Jewish audience, and he uses the second person, you. You crucified and killed Jesus. So who is responsible for the killing of Jesus? In this particular context, Peter's saying you. The Jewish authorities, the Jewish leaders, you were the ones that said, give us Barabbas. You, you handed Jesus over to be killed. You're responsible for his death. But in the same breath, Peter says, this was according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. The definite plan. Now, why does it use the word definite plan? It's the unchangeable plan. It's the definite plan. It's the eternal plan. And it's according to the foreknowledge of God. Not that just God knew what these men would do but that God planned what these men would do. These men acted freely to do what they wanted to do. God knew what they were going to do, but the scripture takes it one step further and says God definitely planned what they were going to do. Now, should we argue or complain against God's decree? Should we say, God, I don't like what you've done? Romans 9, 20 but who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Well, what does molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Now, we could go into a lot of discussions about Romans 9. I've done that on previous podcasts. Don't have time to do, do it in this podcast. But ultimately, we have no right to answer back to God for his decree, how he does things, how he has ordered his universe. He is sovereign. He's the king. He makes the rules. We can't um, complain or argue against God. Are God's decrees absolute? Are they unchangeable? In other words, does God change his decree on the fly, or does what God decreed in eternity past always come to pass? Does he work out all things in accordance with his will? And the answer is yes. His, his decrees are absolute and unchangeable. Listen to Job 23.13. But he is unchangeable, and who can turn him back? What he desires, that he does. This is speaking about God. Now, this deals with some theological issues. He is unchangeable. And who can turn him back? Okay, this 
speaks about the ontological being of God. God is unchangeable. God is immutable. God does not change in his essence and his being. You can't turn him back. You can't make him do something. You can't um, force his hand. What he desires, that he does. In other words, if God has a plan, if God has a purpose, he's going to do that. He's going to execute that decree. Now, again, our non-reformed brothers would say, yeah, we agree with that. God is unchangeable. What he desires that he does, we just know what he desires. He desires to give people free will. And that's their argument. God has a desire. God has a will. God has a decree. That decree is just that people would be free to make choices and that those choices are based upon libertarian free will, contra-causal free will. You can choose X or Y or X, Y, or Z. God knows what you're going to choose, but there's not an eternal decree foreordaining all things which come to pass. So the question is, okay, if God's unchangeable and what he desires he does, does God always accomplish his decree? Yes. Isaiah 14, 24 through 27. The Lord of hosts has sworn, as I have planned, so shall it be, and as I have purposed, so shall it stand. And I will break the Assyrian in my land and on my mountains trample him underfoot, and his yoke shall depart from them and his burden from their shoulder. This is the purpose that I purposed according to the whole earth. And this is the hand that is stretched out over all the nations. For the Lord of hosts has purposed, and who will annul it? His hand is stretched out. Who will turn it back? The word purposed is four times in that Hebrew text. And then the word planned. I've planned, I've purposed, I've purposed, I've purposed. Um, who's going to annul it? Who's going to stop it? Who's going to turn it back? God's asking a rhetorical question. If I've purposed something to happen, can anybody stop it? And the answer is no. Isaiah 45, 7, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Lamentations 3.37, who has spoken and it came to pass unless the Lord has commanded it. So God does accomplish his unchangeable, immutable, sovereign decree. Now, should we try to decipher or try to discern or try to peek into the secret things of God and try to understand this eternal decree? The answer is no. We are not shown anywhere in scriptures that we are supposed to try to decipher or determine or figure out God's eternal decree. Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. Now, this is a very important passage of scripture about two types of revealed will or the will or the decree of God. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. Okay, what are the secret things? This is his eternal, immutable counsel of his will that he alone has decreed from eternity past, whereby he ordains all things that come to pass. He does not share this will with us. He does not reveal this will to us. He's working out this will in time and space through his providence. But we are not privy to this will. It's secret. It belongs to God. We are not told to go search out this will. But the things that are revealed to us, we need to do. And he says that they're the words of this law. Now, again, this is Old Testament con context, but what's the revealed will of God? It's his written word. So 
yes, we are to understand the written word of God, which reveals his will of command, what we're commanded to do, and we're responsible for doing that because it's written down. We know what it is. We'll be held responsible on the day of judgment for how we obeyed the scriptures, how we understood the revealed will of God that he has chosen to reveal to us through prophets and through the writers of scriptures to have a written documentation of God's word to us that's the inspired text. That's what we're responsible for. But the secret things, the secret counsel, what God has determined to do, we don't have to pry into that or try to figure that out. We're not accountable on the day of judgment for understanding the secret things of the Lord. Now, let me just read to you uh, the 1689 chapter on God's decree. Because this, we're getting to the actual confession. Before we were just talking about the catechism questions, which are based upon the 1689. But in the chapter 3 on God's decree, paragraph 1, this is what the 1689 says. God has decreed in himself from all eternity by the most wise and holy counsel of his will, freely and unchangeably all things whatsoever come to pass. Yet so as God is neither the author of sin nor has any fellowship with any therein, nor is violence offered to the will of the creature, nor yet is a liberty or contingency of secondary causes taken away, but rather established, in which appears his wisdom in disposing all things in power and faithfulness in accomplishing his decree. Now, this is worded very carefully, and this comes almost exactly from the Westminster Confession, so the, the Westminster and the 1689 are very similar on this, almost word for word. God hath decreed from eternity Freely and unchangeably, all things whatsoever come to pass. That's the thesis. That's the document. That's the, not, not the document. That's the, um, the teaching. But the confession gives three qualifiers. Just so there's no misunderstanding, because there could be a misunderstanding of, okay, that brings up some questions. If God ordains everything that comes to pass, that brings up some questions. And so it seems like there's some scriptures that may uh, interfere with that or disagree with that. So the confession is very wise to give three qualifiers. And so what are these three qualifiers? Well, the first qualifier is, with that being said, God is not the author of sin. James 1.13, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. God does not directly cause or make a person sin nor does God do sin, nor is God the one who committed the first sin with Adam and Eve in the garden. Now, with that being said, God does ordain sin to happen. God ordained the fall. God decreed for these things to happen, but he does not directly do the sin. Okay, second qualifier. God's decree does not do violence to the will of his creatures, to the, to the will of his people. Okay, just because God has a decree, people still act freely according to what they want to do. Now, this is called compatibilism. God has a sovereign decree. Humans act freely and they're responsible. Now, we see this in Acts 4, 27 through 28. It's very similar to what we saw Peter preaching at Pentecost, but the early church was gathered and this was part of their prayer in Acts 4, 27 through 28. For truly in this city, talking about Jerusalem, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand 
and your plan had predestined to take place. Okay, we see two things in this passage of Scripture. Let's just start with the, the, the difficult one first. God's hand, God's plan, predestined Jesus to be crucified. It was part of God's predestined plan for Jesus to be tried, to be arrested, to be flogged, to be beaten, to be crucified. That was God's predestined plan. So in a sense, you could say that God predestined something to happen. Okay, how does that happen? It has to happen through people. And there's a list of four groups of people in this passage of Scripture. Herod. Okay, Herod was the, the quote-unquote king who was in bed with the Roman authorities. You've got Pontius Pilate, who was the governor, who was actually the one who sentenced Jesus to death. The Gentiles, that would be the Roman soldiers who actually physically nailed Jesus to the cross. The peoples of Israel, that would be the Jewish leaders who brought the charges and had the mock trial and the false witnesses. And so there are four people or groups of people that were instrumental in bringing about the predestined death of Jesus. Now, the question is, did these men act freely to do what they wanted to do? Yes, they did. God was not holding a gun to their head. They did what they wanted to do. Herod wanted Jesus dead. Pilate was a coward and basically sentenced Jesus to death. The Gentiles, the Roman soldiers, they were doing their job. They nailed Jesus to the cross. Um, the Israelites, the, the Jewish leaders, they were doing what they wanted to do. Every single one of these men, these people, were doing what they wanted to do freely. In other words, you could say they were acting freely to do what they wanted to do. Yet, behind it all, they are doing what God's hand and plan predestined to take place. So God had a sovereign decree that Jesus' death would happen. And these people are responsible for carrying it out. God doesn't hold a gun to their head making them do it. They did freely what they wanted to do out of their nature. Okay, so that's qualifier number two. Qualifier number three, and this is something we need to understand very, very carefully, God's decree utilizes or employs real secondary causes. This is where I think a lot of times our, 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 our non-reformed provisionist, Arminian, synergist um, brothers and sisters in Christ don't quite understand the reformed view. We believe in real secondary causes. God obviously is the primary cause of everything, because he has eternal decree, but he operates this decree through secondary causes. Now let me give you an example. Job. God ordains Job's suffering. We know that. But when you read the account in the book of Job, you have two secondary causes. Okay, So God permits Satan to take everything away from Job except for his life. We see this at the very beginning. Job 1, 9-12. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Okay, can Satan do anything to Job that God does not, let's just say in this sense, permit? 
in the text is very clear. No. God says you can take anything away from him, but against his life, you can't take his life. And so Satan is carrying out the decree of God as a secondary cause. Now, you may say, okay, where in the text do we see Satan actually inflicting evil upon Job? Well, what you're going to see is another secondary cause besides Satan. You're going to see the Sabaeans and the Chaldeans. They came and raided and killed Job's servants. So the Sabaeans and the Chaldeans, later on in, 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 the, in, the, in the narrative, they acted freely in doing what pagan raiders do. What do pagan raiders do? They come and attack and pillage. Did Satan make them do it? The text doesn't say. All we know is they acted freely. Was Satan behind it? Yes, in some sense. Who was behind both of these secondary causes of evil for Job? Who was behind Satan doing what he did? And who was behind the Sabaeans and Chaldeans doing what they did? It was God, ultimately. Job one twenty one. he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now, obviously, Job does not know what's going on in the cosmic theater between God and Satan. All Job knows from his earthly perspective is that everything that's happening to him is from the Lord. He does not know anything about Satan's activity. So, so who does Job attribute this wrongdoing and evil? Does he blame Satan? No. Does he even blame the Chaldeans or the Sabaeans? Does he blame the wind that came and knocked down his house? No, he blames, he doesn't blame the secondary causes. He goes directly to God. He says, the Lord has taken away. So in Job's mind, everything comes from the hand of God, yet we know from the story that, yes, God is the primary cause of everything, but this is being carried out through secondary causes that Job's not aware of, and that is Satan, and then the, the, the Sabines and the Chaldeans, who are the, the direct actors in the, in the drama of killing his servants. At the end of the book, when Job is confronted with the glory of the Lord and the whirlwind and God speaks to him and Job says, I repent in dust and ashes. I didn't really know who you were, but now I truly do. And then everything is, is, is kind of brought to a conclusion. At the end of the book, it's very interesting. Job 42, 11. Then came to him all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before and ate bread with him in his house. And they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. Okay, at the end of Job, do we have anything said about the evil that Satan brought upon him? Or the Sabaeans or the Chaldeans? The evil is attributed to the Lord that brought it upon him. Now, that word evil is ra'ah in Hebrew. Um, is it moral evil? Is it trouble? Is it calamity? There's, depending on the context, that, that Hebrew word's a little elastic, but it really doesn't matter because killing servants is a moral evil and taking human life, as well as the wind blowing and causing the house to fall upon the children is a natural disaster. That's still 
calamity, and evil. But the point is, how does the theology of Job work? From first to last, God is the one that brought all these things upon Job. Does God do this directly? No. He employs real secondary causes. Satan, wind, the Sabaeans, and the Chaldeans. So this is an example of how God has a sovereign decree, and you can say God permits, God allows, God ordains. You know, there's, there's semantic differences there. Some people like the question, you know, some people like the terminology, well, God just allowed it. God permitted it. That, that's a little bit easier to deal with than God ordained it. It really doesn't get you any, any different conclusion, because if you kick the can far enough down the road, even if God permitted it, he's allowing it to happen for a purpose, and he's not stopping it. So even if God ordains it or God's permitting it, ultimately God's the one who's in charge and, he, and he's not stopping it from happening when he could have otherwise. Okay, so that's the question. God uses secondary causes. God doesn't violate the will of people. They do what they freely want to do. And God is not the author of sin. Okay, so God has an eternal decree. God has an unchangeable, immutable decree. God's decree extends to all things whatsoever come to pass. Okay, question 11. Now we're back to the catechism, the, the Keech's Baptist Catechism. Question 11. Okay, how does God execute his decrees? Great question. If God has a sovereign decree, how are they worked out? Well, God executes his decrees in the works of creation and providence. Now, we'll focus on the second one there, providence. What is providence? Okay. Oftentimes we talk about the difference between sovereignty and providence or against uh, the difference between God's decree and God's providence. Let me just say it this way. God's decree is his purpose, his plan that he made to the glory of his own will unchangeably about whatsoever comes to pass. It's the plan. It's the determination. It's the sovereign counsel. Providence is how God works out that decree in time and space and in history. It's the working out of that eternal decree in, with real people and real circumstances in real places and times. Isaiah 46, 9 and 10. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God, there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. So God is going to accomplish all of his purpose. His counsel is going to stand. The end from the beginning, everything in time and space from creation to the end of time, everything that works itself out in time, in history, God's going to accomplish that through his providence. And so God executes his decree in time and space and history through his providence. That's just the word, providence, his actually working out of the decree. Daniel 4.35, all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth that none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Okay, God does according to his will. Okay, anytime God does according to his will, we must understand that that's a sovereign, unchangeable, immutable will. It's not a changing will. It's not God just knows what's going to happen. God has ordained what's going to happen. And he does that among the host of heaven, and among the inhabitants of the earth. God works among the people of the earth. And you can't stop it. You can't stay his hand. You can't say, what have you done, God? Why have you done this? God's going to accomplish his decree. His decree 
can't be altered or amended or changed. What he works out in providence is in direct correlation with what his sovereign decree is. It's an unchanging decree. Job 42.2, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted, can be stopped. Oftentimes we don't go to the book of Ecclesiastes, but there's a little nugget in Ecclesiastes chapter 3 where Solomon gives some great theological information about the sovereignty and the providence and the decree of God. Ecclesiastes 3, 11 through 14. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity in a man's hearts, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there's nothing better for them to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceived that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it nor taken away from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. Whatever God does endures forever. God's plans, God's actions, God's providence, whatever, is, whatever he does, you can't add to that. You can't subtract to that. God does this for his own glory, for his own purpose. We're powerless to control or manipulate God. And really the response we should have there, the, the writer, uh, the, the preacher, Solomon says, is so that people would fear God. The reason why God does what he does sovereignly, meticulously, working out his divine decree is so that we would worship him. Okay? Now let's go to question 14. So the first question is, what are the decrees of God? It's where God unchangeably, freely decrees all things that come to pass. How does God execute his decrees? Second question, through providence. Okay, uh, question 14 is, okay, what are God's works of providence? What are these? And the answer is, God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing, governing all his creatures and all their actions. God governs all creatures and all their actions. Okay, that brings up a question. Does that mean God governs evil actions? Now we've already looked at this and said in the crucifixion of Christ, God governed, God ordained evil actions to occur. God is not the author or the actual performer of those evil actions. People acted freely to do what they wanted to do. They acted evilly yet it was all part of God's predestined plan. We saw that in Job. Satan acted evilly. The Sabaeans acted evilly. They were doing what God ordained to happen, and that extended to evil works. So let's think about Joseph. Joseph, back in Genesis, was sold into slavery by his brothers. They really wanted to murder him, but they thought it would be a little bit better just to sell him into slavery, and so he ends up going to Potiphar's house and gets accused of rape and then spends many years in prison. And then eventually uh, God works in his life to get him out of prison. He becomes the prime minister of Egypt, second in command to the Pharaoh. Um, he, he reaches this high position ultimately so that his family, the Israelites, could get grain in a time of famine and their lives could be spared. And so this whole trajectory of Joseph's life started back when his brothers, his older brothers, acted evilly upon him. And now at the end of the book, when he's older and his brothers are older and Jacob, their father's dead, um, 
that they have a confrontation. And notice the theology. In Genesis 45, 8, Jacob, or not, Joseph says, So it was not you, talking to the brothers, so it was not you, brothers, who sent me here, but God. He's made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Okay, so question, who sent Joseph to Egypt? Well, just humanly speaking, you would say, obviously the brothers. They were the instruments that were that, that, that actually sent him to Egypt. They sold him into slavery. He was in Egypt because they sent him there wickedly. And what does Joseph say? You didn't send me here. God sent me here. Okay, Joseph, is this doublespeak? Because we know that it was the brothers who sold you into slavery, and if they hadn't sold you into slavery, you wouldn't have ended up in Egypt. Yes, they acted freely to do what they wanted to do, but behind it all, it was God's sovereign purpose to send Joseph to Egypt. And at the very end of the book, in Genesis 50, 20, this is again what Joseph says to his brothers. As for you, talking to his brothers, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it, the evil, for good, to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Now, I want you to see a parallelism there. You meant evil, God meant evil for good. Same Hebrew word. I want you to pay careful attention to the words used here by Joseph. Does God merely respond to the evil actions after the fact and then somehow work them out for good? Or does God have a sovereign intention or design in everything that happens? Joseph does not say God used your evil for good. God worked out your evil for good. That's not what he says. He says, God meant that evil. You meant evil against me, but God meant that same evil for good. Now, it's the same Hebrew word. What does that word meant mean? Okay, You meant evil, God meant that evil for good. In the Hebrew language, it literally means to weave, like a weaver with cloth and yarn. But in this case, it means to devise, to determine, to plan or strategize. This word was often used when an army was going to war, how they would put together a battle plan or a strategy, a military strategy, before they went out into contact or combat. So th this word means more than just God used the evil after the fact. It meant that God actually planned, devised, strategized the brothers' evil at the time they were doing the evil to bring about his ordained ends. So the brothers determined and planned evil against Joseph by selling him into slavery. They were acting freely in doing this evil. No outside force caused them to act this way. God did not put a gun to their head making them do that. They acted out of their own jealous hearts. They acted out of their own hateful nature. They intentionally purposed the evil. Yet at the same time, carefully if we read the text, God didn't just use their evil, but God had a defined purpose a definite intention, a strategy for that evil as well. So we see God's eternal decree, unchangeable, for ordaining all things that come to pass, working out all things according to the counsel of his will. That decree cannot be altered. It cannot be uh, changed. God is not contingent upon the free actions of people. God has a sovereign decree. He works out that decree in time and space and history through providence, 
through actual events, and this extends even to the evil actions of men and women who act freely out of their nature, but do exactly what God ordained for them to do. Now, let's look at some voices from history, because I think it's always good. I like on this podcast to bring in uh, church history along with biblical theology. So what have some of the key Reformed voices from history said about this? Well, let's think about Luther. Uh, Martin Luther in, in, in The Bondage of the Will. I mean, everybody should read Bondage of the Will, if not just for the comic relief factor, because <laughs> he gets some pretty colorful language in there. But he says this, quote, It is then fundamentally necessary and wholesome for Christians to know that God foreknows nothing contingently, but that he foresees, purposes, and does all things according to his own immutable, eternal, and infallible will. This bombshell knocks free will flat and utterly shatters it. It's probably his famous statement about God's eternal sovereign decree. It shatters, it knocks free will to the ground. He also writes this, The Christian's chief and only comfort in every adversity lies in knowing that God does not lie, but brings all things to pass immutably, and that his will cannot be resisted, altered, or impeded. Basically, Luther's logic, if you read the bondage of the will, is God foreknows that which he foreordains. If he foreknows something, he must therefore logically first ordained it. Therefore, all things come to pass by God's for ordination. That's just Luther's theology. Okay, let's talk about Calvin. John Calvin in Institutes of Christian Religion. Quote, if God merely foresaw human events and did not also arrange and dispose of them at his pleasure, there might be room for agitating the question how his foreknowledge amounts to necessity. But since he foresees the things which are to happen simply because he has decreed that they are so to happen, it is vain to debate about foreknowledge, while it is clear that all events take place by his sovereign appointment. Again, that's just Calvin's way of saying what the confessions say, that all things come to pass unchangeably ordained by God's sovereign decree. It's not this God merely foresees what's going to happen, but God arranges and decrees that. Okay? Let's talk about Herman Bovink. Herman Bovink asked this question. Quote, if God infallibly knows in advance what a person will do in a given case, he can foreknow this only if the person's motives determines his or her will in one specific direction. And this will therefore does not consist in indifference. Conversely, if that will were indifferent, foreknowledge would be impossible, and only post-factum knowledge would exist. In other words, what he's saying is, if God just merely knows what you're going to do, and he sees that, and it's not an unchangeable foreordination, then he would just be merely taking in knowledge, and it would be knowledge after the fact of the decision that he saw you make. But you would have the freedom to make the other decision, um, X or Y, which means God wouldn't have perfect foreknowledge of the event. Okay, Louis Burkhoff, the decree of God carries with it necessity. God is decreed to effectuate all things, or if he has not decreed that, he's at least determined that they must come to pass. The Arminian, of course, will say that he does not believe in a foreknowledge based on a decree, which renders things certain, but in a foreknowledge of fact and events which are contingent on the free will of man, and therefore indeterminate. That's a pretty succinct statement from Louis Burkhoff in his Systematic Theology about the difference between the Reform view and the non-Reform view, between 
God's eternal immutable decree, and God's mere foreknowledge. Lorraine Bettner, in his The Reformed Doctrine of Predestination, says this, What God foreknows must, in the very nature of the case, be as fixed and certain as what is foreordained. Foreordination renders the event certain, while foreknowledge presupposes that they are certain. Now, if future events are foreknown to God, they cannot by any possibility take a turn contrary to his knowledge. Furthermore, if the acts of free agents are in themselves uncertain, God must then wait until the event has had its issue before making his plan. To deny the perfect knowledge and immutability is to represent him as a disappointed and unhappy being who is often checkmated and defeated by his creatures. Now I know the provisionist and the non-Calvinist are going to take issue with that, and they'll say, we don't believe God's checkmated or de defeated by his creatures or that God's fr frustrated or dis disappointed. Um, we, we don't believe that at all because we just basically believe that God's decree involves giving humans free will. And when, when they use their free will to do something that God doesn't want, God's not frustrated because he decreed that they would have free will. That's their argument. A.W. Pink it is not self-evident that if God foreknows all things, he also has foreordained all things. Is it not clear that God foreknows what will be because he has decreed what shall be? God's foreknowledge is not the cause of events. Rather, are the events the effects of his eternal purpose. In the nature of things, there cannot be anything known as what shall be unless it's certain to be. And there's nothing certain to be unless God ordained it shall that's from his book, The Sovereignty of God. And let me just give you uh, one more quote here from Wayne Grudem in his Systematic Theology. Uh, Wayne Grudem is a Calvinist. I wouldn't say he's Reformed uh, because he's got some different views related to um, continuationism and millennial views that he's not really a covenant theologian and he tends to have some charismatic leanings. So he's a Calvinist, but not necessarily Reformed. But he, he holds the same the same theology. He says, even if God did not plan or cause things to happen, the fact that they are foreknown means they will certainly come about. And this means that our decisions are predetermined by something, whether fate or the inevitable cause and effect mechanism of the universe, and they are still not free in the sense the Arminian wishes them to be free. If our future choices are known, then they are fixed. If our future choices are known, they are fixed. And that again goes to the fact that is God's foreknowledge of all things perfect or is it not? And so again, it's important for us to think about the sovereign decree, the providence of God, how he's working out his eternal plan and purpose in time and space. And again, remember, these catechism questions were given to children to answer. We oftentimes think children can't handle these big truths. And I found that uh, children that have grown up in Reformed theology, uh, like my son and, and the children in my church that have just kind of grown up with this theology, they don't have any problems with God's predestination, God's eternal decree, God's sovereignty. I mean, it's just what they've grown up with. Uh, they've accepted it as the teaching of Scripture. They've been catechized faithfully, and so it doesn't bother them. What, what really... You find the rub is people that have grown up in maybe a dispensational or an Arminian or a traditional Southern Baptist background, and then when they get exposed to these things, that's where they really have problems because it goes against uh, what they've grown up with. And so I just think it's important um, from time to time to, to think about the catechisms 
Um, if you don't have a copy of Keech's Catechism, I, I encourage you to get it. We, we do this on Sunday mornings in our church. Um, every Sunday morning, uh, we um, ask a catechism question, and then the kids yell out in response the answer to it. And then we have a scripture, and then we also offer uh, the Baptist Catechism for children uh, for our parents to be doing at home. But it's kind of a fun way for our kids to be learning this in the church service. We also do this in our Wednesday night children's ministry. They also uh, get the Baptist Catechism there. So they're getting it in our Wednesday night children's ministry. They're getting it on Sunday morning in corporate worship. And they're also getting it at home as their parents are catechizing them uh, with the actual book. And so thank you for listening to Understanding Christianity. I appreciate so much you listening to this podcast. I can't tell you how much um, it thrills me to know that there are people out there that are blessed. Hopefully the, the Sunday morning sermons on Luke have been helpful. Also our Wednesday night teachings on the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, I pray that those have been a blessing to you. Until next time, will we all keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. Jesus.